Hello, everyone. Welcome to Keeping It Independent, a podcast brought to you by Whipples Hybrids. My name is Jared Goplin. I'm an agronomy manager here with Whipples, and uh, I guess I'm really excited about our episode today. We get to bring in another outside guest, and uh, this is a topic I guess uh, I'm I'm always interested to to learn more about this, and it's the history of corn. So uh, happy to bring one of our own corn breeders into this discussion. So uh, Devin Nichols is uh, is joining us here today for our discussion, and uh, I'm excited too because we get to have this conversation face to face. This is the first time on the podcast that I haven't been talking to a computer screen uh, to people virtually, so that's pretty exciting as well. So welcome Devin to the podcast, and yeah, thank uh, you. excited to have our conversation here today talking about corn. Yeah, very glad to be here. I've been a longtime listener to the podcast, so I think I've listened to most of the episodes. Glad to be here and on the other side of the mic today. Longtime listener, first time caller. Yeah. I guess, do people still say that? I don't know. I kind of miss those days. We bring it up here once in a while anyway. So, but, uh, so I don't know, I guess to start things off, why don't you give a little background? So you obviously mentioned you're a corn breeder here at Whipples. Uh, you haven't been here forever. So, and you have a little background. So if you want to paint a picture of, you know, where, who you are, where you've come from and, and, uh. Yeah, what your role is here, I guess. Sure. Yeah, I think we started with Wiffles about the same time, mine just about three years ago. I remember that because I used to always get your name tag when I we <laughs> out of officers show up to a conference and nobody knows who we are. So, um, yeah, so I started with Wiffles as a corn breeder three years ago. I'm based out of my uh, house in Springfield, so I kind of cover the southern geography for Wiffles. We have three breeders located in the home office in Geneseo and then one located in uh, Williamsburg, Iowa as well. So to kind of cover our geography better. Uh, prior to joining Wiffles, I spent about 12 years working for one of the big ag corporate conglomerates, at, also as a corn breeder. Uh, most of that time was also in the, in the Springfield, Illinois area. I did spend uh, two winters in Nebraska when I first got out of grad school, decided I preferred muddy winters to snowy winters. So <laughs> I took, took the first train I could back to Illinois and have been there since. I grew up in central Illinois, so about an hour west of Springfield is, is where I call home. Did all of my school at University of Illinois, so bachelor's, master's, PhD, all in the crop sciences department there, um, studying corn breeding um, for my PhD and uh, soybean breeding for my master's. Uh, so if we use uh, breeding language, I, I call myself an Illinois inbred. Uh, <laughs> lots of time spent in Illinois, which as a corn breeder, it's, it's maybe not a bad thing to, to be located in Illinois or Iowa. So. So Devin, you kind of got roped into this because I've heard that you have your own uh, or have had in the past your own uh, teosinte. So teosinte, of course, being uh, well, the topic, at least where we're going to start today, uh, kind of the predecessors to corn, modern, what we think of as modern day corn looks much different. Uh, I got to say, when I was in, uh, in college, I uh, had a tropical ecology class. We got to go down into Central America, got to see teosinte growing in the wild. And I tell you what, there's not a whole heck of a lot of resemblance between teosinte and corn. So, but I've heard you've grown teosinte maybe in some of the nurseries in the past. So that's, I guess, why you're here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, why don't you give us a little background on uh, why you've grown teosinte? And yeah, we'll get into that conversation where the heck corn came from. Sure. Yeah. So I, I do, I typically do plant uh, a row of teosinte in my nursery. Doesn't always germinate. That's uh, the, so the seed of teosinte are very, very hard kernels. So usually you have to scarify them, which is roughing up the seed coat so it can get water in to, to start the germination process. Um, so I rub sandpaper on it, germinate it inside. But yeah, it looks very different. So when I planted out there, if somebody who didn't know what it was came to the nursery, you'd just think it was a weed. Right. A foxtail like <laughs> weed, maybe. Um, so it's very, so our modern corn has a single strong stalk with typically just a single ear that has several hundred kernels of grain on that ear. Teosinte has many stalks, so it has many tillers. So 
when I grow it here, maybe 15, 20 tillers that are all about, <clears throat> excuse me, about the same height, pretty weak, um, so very grass-like. And then each of those tillers will put a tiny little tassel at the end that sheds pollen. And then in nearly every leaf sheaf all the way down, there'll be a tiny little, you can't even really call it an ear. It's uh, what became the ear of corn, but, uh, and it typically each of those would maybe have five or six of these tiny hard grains on them. And so there's been a lot of work over time to go from teosinte to corn, but teosinte is what the general consensus is. That's the progenitor of corn. And there's been a lot of genetic research. Um, they're very genetically similar. They can cross pollinate with each other and produce fertile offspring. So, yeah. So when, uh, when I went to Central America, of course, uh, we got to tour some of the Mayan ruins there and being people of the corn kind of in that Mexico, uh, Northern Guatemala area. Uh, that's right. Thought to be the area where, where Teosinte was domesticated, right? Yeah. So, so they, it was in Mexico. I, I believe the, the source of, um, domestication they think is in Southeastern Mexico. Um, but yeah, then quickly spread, um, throughout the country and throughout the continent. So that by the time the Europeans arrived, there was corn basically from the tip of South America up into Canada. Um, so it pretty quickly was distributed around, but yeah, that point of origin is in Mexico. That's at least the reason given by the Mexican government to not allow uh, genetically modified traits in Mexican corn because they cross-pollinate and they're worried about gene flow of our um, biotech traits into Teosinte. Hmm. So what did those early, I mean, what was the time frame here? We're talking maybe, what, 10,000-ish years ago? Yeah, so the domestication, when they try to date it, somewhere between eight and 10,000 years ago, so 6,000 BC or so was... Um, the, when domestication started. Now, obviously that doesn't happen overnight. You don't go from the wild weedy grass that I tried to describe to corn overnight. So there's a long period of history where plant breeding is taking place, but it's really a primitive form of plant breeding. So when we talk about plant breeding, at least most breeders like to call it an art and a science. Part of that's because we like the art part and being in the field. Modern day plant breeders, we use a lot of scientific tools as well to make sure we're advancing things. Early on, it was very much just an art where the farmers who were, or probably initially the gatherers who were gathering teosinte to store and use for their food source would identify a mutation that, for example, there's, a, I believe the mutation is called teosinte branch one is the gene that will basically reduce the tillers and is a major, they've tracked it down to five or six-ish major genes that were really important to domestication. But really, it was just over time, they would notice these in the wild or in their field of teosinte, say, hey, this one's producing more grain, or this one is easier for us to manage and cultivate. And they would select that and use that as a seed source going forward. And that type of selection really persisted probably into the 1800s. I mean, so for thousands of years, it was just sort of a mass selection of we're growing this for food, saving seed from the best um, or what's perceived as the best visually carrying those forward. Um, so not necessarily dissimilar to, you know, I think of uh, some of the stories my grandpa, you know, tells of, you know, not necessarily that long ago, you know, guys saving ears of corn, um, you know, some of those that were the biggest ears of corn and uh, saving those for seed the following year, you know, kind of in that, uh, it, it's basically the same type of concept, right? I mean, so, and when I think about this, it's, it's still bizarre to me because uh, I think of like a big barnyard grass plant is kind of yeah. almost what I think of when I think of Tiacente going from that to right. corn. And if I think of barnyard grass, you know, you've got a million different 
heads of seed basically, and the seed doesn't get very big. So when you talk about some of these major genes that sort of limited the number of tillers, I assume that's maybe drove the seed size. Is that part correct? Yes. Yeah, so then when you only have a single main stock, plant puts all of its energy there. And so ends up having more grain on that single stock, bigger ears, um, and eventually selecting for softer grain that you don't have to use sandpaper or rub on a rock to get to germinate and really domesticate it into a form where you can produce more grain, but corn as it is today wouldn't survive more than a couple generations if humans weren't harvesting and planting it, right? You'd drop a ear all in one spot. You'd have 500 plants that grew in a one foot by one foot area the next year, and none of those would produce seed after a couple seasons. So it's co-evolution. So we depend on it, but now the corn depends on humans. I think that gets to kind of one of the questions we had brought up was difference between selection and, and crossing. I guess you want to kind of walk us through that. It's, it's some, uh, I guess, an intro to breeder lingo, if you right. Will. Yeah. So, so crossing, I would, uh, I would describe as that's you're recombining genetics to create new genetics. Um, so in corn breeding, we're crossing one corn line to another corn line, producing offspring. Not unlike a husband and wife have children. The children aren't all identical, right? We can have some identical twins, but generally, I mean, I have several brothers. We don't look anything alike, but the same parents, same, same story with corn. So we can cross two inbreds to produce uh, a population of several hundred offspring. There'll be very big differences in those offspring. So that's crossing is cro cross pollinating individuals. Now it's inbred lines in the open pollinated variety, which maybe we skipped over that and I'll have to circle back to OPPs. At that point, they weren't crossing inbred lines, but they would cross two different open pollinated varieties that were from different regions and were different genetics um, in the backgrounds, bring those together to produce uh, new genetics. Now we do it. Um, that's if, if you come to my nursery, you see me hanging paper, like grocery bags on the tassels and little white uh, shoot bags over all the shoots to keep um, pollen from coming in. So we direct that pollen cross pollinate to produce new genetics. And then selection is when we, so we're producing hundreds of offspring from each of those crosses. And each year we're making several hundred crosses. So we're producing thousands of new genetics every year. So then the selection process is something we don't practice in, uh, in humans, right? So I didn't get to off my brother because he was too short or anything. <laughs> but with So selection is we produce those hundreds of offspring um, and then we're going to field test them to see which ones actually have improved performance. And whether that's improved performance for hybrid yield or improved inbred yield for our production team to be able to produce better or improve standability, the green snap resistance, disease tolerance. We're selecting for all those things, but that's selection. So crossing is creating the new genetics. Selection is then testing and um, seeing which of those actually outperform the parents. 99% of the new genetics we make, we throw away pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And only the best after multiple years of testing, we'll get to a, a farmer's field and go to Whipple's bag. So if we kind of think about the system going from, you know, domesticating, domesticating a crop, obviously fairly low yield levels for thousands and thousands of years, right? Right. Until what we think of more as when we get into more modern, uh, I guess, practices, right? So corn was maybe what, 10 bushels an acre, um, you know, what, probably 150 years ago, right? Yeah. So after domestication, corn spread, I, I said it went spread from tip of South America to Canada. And each of those isolated groups that were growing corn, they were selecting what they needed in their environment. So what's needed in South America is very different than what's needed in the Corn Belt today, especially if you look tropical versus temperate. So there's differences in 
photosensitivity. So our corn is not photosensitive. Uh, tropical corn is, teosinte is. So teosinte won't flower in my nursery until late August when the nights start to get longer uh, and the days shorter. Basically sensing daylight and, right, and exactly. causing so, things to change in the plant. So each of those distinct types of corn, they're not genetically pure, but they're genetically distinct from others. Those were called land races. And that's sort of when Europeans arrived, we would call those land races. A little bit more modern era, so probably still several hundred years ago, there started to be more of a taking land races and crossing them together and creating open pollinated varieties. And so that's, they're just what they, it's a population of unique genetics, but instead of being inbred lines like we have today that are genetically pure, there's still segregation in there. So it's each plant in an OPV is not the same. And so most of our corn today came from uh, a cross between Northern Flints and Southern Dents. There were two distinct um, types of corn. And when those were crossed together, they produced corn belt dense, which was still an open, open pollinated variety, but the corn belt dent genetic pool is what most of our uh, modern genetics come from. That's and that's so, globally, they, we've exported those around the world mm -hmm. now from corn belt dense. Yeah. So, and to just kind of keep this clear, um, when we think about open pollinated varieties and the genetics of each, indi each individual plant, the genetics are slightly different, right? They're Correct. similar. It's kind of like a family, maybe, if you will. Correct. Uh, where your siblings are, tend to be more similar to you than, you know, the neighbor down the street, we hope anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas inbreds, when you mention inbreds, that's where if you plant in, you know, inbreds, every single one of those is, is identical genetically. Correct. Right? Yep. And so OPVs persisted all the way up to the early 1900s. OPVs were what people were growing. You mentioned earlier the ear contest. So that's a lot of times how an OPV would become popular is they'd have these corn fairs. Somebody bring in 10 ears out of their open pollinated variety. They'd judge them. Whichever one was the, had the best 10 ears selected by the farmer would become popular and be planted by a lot of people in the area and transportation and communication got better. That area would get bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was really in the early 1900s when scientists started inbreeding corn and, and initially it was more for chemical analyses. So right, the longest long-term selection experiment in the world is the high oil, low oil selection from the University of Illinois, where they started with an open pollinated variety and started self-pollinating it every year to inbreed it and also um, evaluating the protein and oil content and selecting for high oil and low oil. And um, some of the folks involved with that eventually saw that after generations of inbreeding, you get weaker and weaker plants. And so eventually it gets hard to reproduce them. But then they saw that if you cross two inbreds together and, and hybrid vigor was something known. I mean, I think Darwin wrote about it. It wasn't a new thing, but it was kind of a new discovery, uh, maybe a new implementation of an old discovery where they're developing these corn inbred lines. They're pretty puny and weak and are underperforming all the open pollinated varieties. But then when you crossed genetically distinct inbreds together to produce hybrids, then you would have an increase in yield. And that's when they start seeing 200 bushel per acre yields in hybrid fields. The idea spread pretty quick. Yes. Um, so what was the era when that happened? So we kind of made that shift, right? I think a lot of our listeners maybe have seen kind of that, uh, the yield curve, I guess, if you will, you know, throughout history where, you know, the increase per year was fairly low. Um, you know, you get into some of the open pollinated varieties, um, maybe a little bit faster. Yep. And then all of a sudden when you hit hybridization, it just explodes. Yeah. And so, so the first research and development of inbreds was the, the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was really 1930s era 
when hybrids became widely grown. And I, I think there's a story, the state of Iowa went from 10% hybrid to 90% hybrid in a couple year span. So farmers today, if there's a product that's going to help them be more profitable and productive, they adopt it pretty quickly. It was the same thing. Um, these farmers saw how good their neighbor was doing with hybrid corn, and they, they rushed to it pretty quick. That first era of hybrid corn, starting in the 30s, most of those were what we call double cross hybrids. So the inbreds are so, so weak and hadn't been selected for inbred yield that it was impossible to produce enough hybrid seed in a single cross to actually be able to sell the seed. And so they did a double cross where you'd cross uh, four inbreds, like A by B to produce a hybrid and C by D to produce a hybrid. And then your production would be crossing the A by B by the C by D to produce the seed that you'd sell to a farmer. So a two-step process. Mm -hmm. And that persisted until about the 70s when in that amount of time, so between the 30s and 70s, corn breeders had been able to improve inbred yield enough that then it became possible to just do the single cross hybrids we know today where there's a single male inbred and a single female inbred that are crossed together to produce the hybrid we sell. And that would basically be on the seed production side. So, you know, if a farmer thinks of a bag of seed, that seed was produced by two inbreds, essentially. Correct. Right? A specific female and a specific male. And uh, and that's why you detassel the females in the cornfield. Correct. And, yep. and everything to produce a very specific piece of genetic, you know, where every seed is virtually identical genetically. And, and that's Correct. why your fields of corn look uniform and, yep. and do what they're supposed to do. Exactly. You know, there was a, a few, I guess, shifts, uh, you know, throughout this era. I guess the first question I want to ask is, uh, you know, why do we call corn hybrids, but soybeans are varieties? So I think that fits along with this conversation, right? Right. Yep. And so corn corn are hybrids because of the, the reason you just described, right? So we're producing our hybrids that are seed that come from across from a female inbred and a male inbred in our detasseled seed production fields. The difference with soybean is that's a naturally self-pollinating crop. And so it doesn't experience a lot of hybrid vigor. And so the product that's actually sold and grown on a farmer's farm is just that inbred. If you kept the grain off your hybrid that you're growing in the field and planted it the next year, you'd see segregation. And it wouldn't look pretty. Most, just... <laughs> most of it would not be positive segregation. Just like 99% of what we produce, it doesn't outperform the parent. If you let a, a field of hybrid corn pollinate itself, harvest that and try to replant it, you'd have a mess the next year. Yeah, I always think of the uh, the volunteer corn that's growing next to the grain bin. You know those right. few kernels that escape, and yeah. if you you know if you don't mold them down, you know, <laughs> yeah, they tend to look pretty ugly and, and right. puny. Teosinte was naturally outcrossing, where it's a dioecious plant with separate male and female flowers, and so even teosinte, it can self pollinate, but the wind will blow the pollen, and so it gets cross pollinated. So that's some of those basic biological differences drive that difference in in how we produce those two crops today, soybean versus corn. Speaking of kind of the modern day uh, corn breeding era, you know, a lot of the, that was done in public institutions, right? Universities had right. corn breeders and developed lines, right? You know, at some point that shifted more to the private sector. Um, you know, just kind of, I mean, what era was that? Uh, yeah. In the seventies so maybe? Or? Yeah. So that's when the, yeah, that's when the transition really happened. Now there were always private entities working with corn and developing inbreds prior to the 70s, but 70s is where, is where it really took off. And so I think there's a couple reasons for that. One was entering that single cross era. It was, it was possible to produce larger amounts of seed and be more commercially successful when you're growing single cross versus trying to produce double cross. But I think one of the really big things that happened in the 70s was uh, plant variety protection, uh, which is basically a way to patent your genetics. So prior to that, if, 
if I'm a corn breeder at Wiffles and developed an inbred in 1960, it wouldn't be protected. So as soon as a farmer starts growing that, a corn breeder from another company can access that seed and do whatever they want with it. Starting with the Plant Variety Protection Act, it prevented some of that use of germplasm. So it's really a way to protect your investment. Corporations not going to do research, just like pharmaceutical companies today, right? They're not going to spend a decade and millions of dollars to develop a drug if they can't patent that drug and profit off of it for a while. It's kind of the same with breeding. Before you could use first plant variety protection, and now, now we can get the utility patents just like a drug on a corn and bread. It just protects your investment because just like pharmaceutical research, it takes us yeah, it's a big close to a decade <laughs> to develop a new inbred line. And a lot goes into that. I think in the next podcast with uh, Bob and Chris or, or whoever comes on, they'll talk more about the techniques, but uh, a lot of, a lot of expense goes into developing those new genetics and testing them mm -hmm. before we get a, a product to market. And so the, that patent protection is what really drove a lot of that um, shift to industry and more mm -hmm. investment from industry. And then once industry enters the game, they can put a lot more dollars behind it than academia. So pretty quickly it went from most of the hybrids grown in a farmer's field come from public breeding program inbreds to most, or and nowadays I'd say nearly all of the uh, hybrid corn comes from commercial mm -hmm. uh, private industry. But a lot of kind of background history built into those public programs that, uh, you know, kind of did yeah, a lot of the heavy lifting. Right, sure. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's uh, our... <laughs> Everywhere I've worked, the uh, sales team is always super interested in which hybrids are related to the other hybrids. <laughs> and I always, uh, depending on my mood, I'll say they're all related. They all came from Teosinte or <laughs> they're all related. They came from the same 10 public lines that were popular in the 1970s. When, and, and, it's, and it's true. It's, I, there's a lot of uh, similar genetics in the background of all the companies. And then they've diverged some. Right. I mean, that's part of why the yield gains have been as good as they have. Right. right. And you're taking the best and recombining them and making them better. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes miss. And there's still parts of the world where you can't patent protect seed. And so there's still some of that. But I, I kind of I obviously wasn't uh, a corn breeder in the 70s. Maybe not obviously to a, a listener because I can't see <laughs> me, but I was not. Um, so I didn't live through that era where um, you could use whatever genetics you could access. But I've heard lots of stories about winter nurseries where all the companies are using the same grower and you might just happen to go across the fence to grab whatever <laughs> pollen you thought was good from your competitor and, and use it. So there, there was a lot of uh, flashlight breeding back in the day. Yeah. I guess kind of the last piece and uh, last topic before we wrap uh, the episode up here today is really, uh, if we think about the interaction between breeding and farming practices, right? I mean, uh, you know, every year we have our Hall of Fame hybrids where, you know, some of these big hybrids in our company's history are planted every year. And and frankly, they look very similar, right, to modern day hybrids. Right. You know, if we talk about W26, which, uh, you know, was a big hybrid for us uh, quite a few years ago now. But, you know, just looking at a single plant, it looks very similar. But the populations we planted at, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago were a lot lower than they are today. And, you know, that's some of where that yield gain has come from, right? Correct. Ability, the ability to develop plants that are able to tolerate higher densities, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's, I, I probably, if you planted W26 next to, 7876 at 20,000 plants per acre and very little fertilizer, you might not see much difference in yield either. A lot of what's increased that yield is not necessarily selection for, in uh, for increased grain per plant, but in increased grain per acre. And so that's breeding for improved stress tolerance so that you can plant at higher density and still get the nutrients and have the standard stock strength and root strength to keep that grain where you can harvest it at the end of the year 
So when we're developing new uh, inbreds and hybrids, we're always doing the hybrid testing of the new genetics in, uh, in farmer's fields. So we have 70-ish re research locations that we're testing at each year. One of those is at the home farm in Geneseo that's land owned by Wiffles Hybrids. The others are just in farmer's fields. And so we're testing under whatever conditions that grower is using. So the same um, plant populations. Well, so plant populations, we might bump up a little bit, but um, if they're using fungicide, we'll have them spray fungicide on ours. Uh, whatever tillage practices they're using, we'll, we'll go with that. So we're testing as it's going to be grown. We're selecting for yield in the environment where our customers are going to grow it. The density piece, I can come back to a little bit. So we try to so what we're testing today isn't going to be sold for several years. And so we will try to look at like, what's the trend for plant density? For a long time, it was increasing by, you probably know this stat better than me, but I think it's something like 500 plants per acre mm -hmm. per year that um, the, the plant populations were growing up. So we would, we would try to look ahead and say, okay, well, plant population on average is 32,000 today, and this product isn't going to be out for five years, then we need to be bumping up that population a little bit in our test sites. Um, now, I think that's plateaued a little bit, so we don't want to get too far ahead and be testing it. 45,000 plants per acre when growers are going to go to that, it's a ways off. So, yeah. but we try to predict that and maybe test towards the future environment a little bit, but definitely those things have had an impact on, uh, I, I would say things like planting plant population, the use of fertilizers as that increases, there's more nutrients available. So even without trying to measure physiological nitrogen uptake or utilization within a plant, we're selecting for things that use it better as there's more nitrogen available mm -hmm. in the plant. Had to make sure we get that in there. You know, as an agronomist, we can't give you breeders all the credit. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think you got to say corn rootworm too, right? You get paid. You know, I was really proud of myself. I went through this whole episode without saying it, but a long time listener, I couldn't <laughs> let you get away with it. Yeah, right. But uh well, with that, I think we'll uh, wrap up this episode. Uh, thanks you guys for listening. Uh like always, if you have feedback, questions, other topics you want us to cover, uh reach out to us at uh, agronomy at wiffles.com. And with that, I guess stay safe out there.